China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined again by Andrew Polk, co-founder of Trivium China, and Gerard de Pippo, Senior Fellow in the Economics Program here at CSIS. This week we're going to be talking national security. Specifically, we're going to look at the recent and occasional slash rare convening of the National Security Commission in China. We'll parse the readout and we'll look more broadly on what this increasing discourse uh, and policy momentum on national security is going to mean for China. Gerard, Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us, Jude. For listeners, Gerard and Andrew will get better synced up on who says they, uh, great to be here in future episodes. So guys, I wanted to start with just high-level observations on this convening. So on May 31st, we had a meeting of the National Security Commission. This was notable because the commission formed in 2014 does not meet frequently, or at least we don't have meeting readouts that uh, indicate how often this meets. Unlike the Politburo, which we get a readout every month, the National Security Commission exists within the realm of the Politburo Standing Committee, where we have a guess of how often the Standing Committee meets, and you only very rarely in an ad hoc way have meeting readouts. So there's clearly a, uh, an important signal being sent here by the convening. Gerard, let me start with you. Looking at across the readout, I wanted to ask you what stuck out to you in terms of top line messages or any important signals that you found notable. Well, one is a continuation of a pre-existing theme, which was in Xi's speech around the Party Congress, and which was in Xi's speech around the NPC, but also during the Party Congress, which is the idea of having to balance or rebalance development with security. So it says that we need to; it's necessary to guarantee the new development pattern with a new security pattern. And so if you are an official, the main message here is yet again, you have two very broad priorities. One is security, one is development. Development is sort of the traditional objective, but now you're being told to balance those two things. It's not that they're given up on development, but it's it's not obvious how you're supposed to handle that. And also it's not, maybe this is beyond what they would say in a readout, but it's there's certainly tensions in the nature of the policy there, right? So if you're trying to maximize national security, you would imagine a set of policies that is different than maximizing economic development, right? And it's not clear how to reconcile that balance, even though there's a longstanding trend of basically delegating balance of, of contradictions to lower level officials, but it's, it's a tough spot to be in. So can I ask you as a follow-up, why does it strike us as novel that China is trying to balance security and development? I mean, it strikes me that, of course, the remit for policymakers in other countries here in the United States is trying to both secure national security interests, but also make sure your GDP grows. Why do we find this that notable in the Chinese context? One reason is right now the Chinese economy is not doing well. The consumption recovery, which we talked about last time, is not going as well as they had hoped. It's 
okay in services, but definitely not in goods. And the industrial sector is not doing well, and and the real estate sector is still, you know, in the throes of the long tail of the of the three red lines. And so you would imagine if someone had just told me sort of in the abstract, this is the condition of the Chinese economy, what would you expect to be Beijing's priority? I would say, oh, well, six stabilities. It would be about making sure the economy is, is fine, that employment, particularly for the young, is being addressed, et cetera. But they felt the need to broadcast this readout of the National Security Commission, which surely doesn't meet that infrequently, right? We're just not seeing it. And yet they wanted to, to emphasize the national security side. So it's like, given the objective conditions they're facing as an economy, it does strike me as notable that they're still saying balance security with development rather than saying you must stabilize the economy at all costs. Well, and can I jump on the back of that real quick, Jude? I would say, I think another reason maybe it's notable is obviously for decades, the priority was grow as fast as you can, right? Top line GDP, keep that as high as possible in terms of growth, try to rise or you know boost uh, per capita GDP. That was kind of a fundamental goal that the party was trying to achieve. And I, I'd almost characterize it, we don't see this explicitly, but in a way, economic development was a means of obtaining security for the past several decades, right? We need to be able to feed ourselves. We need to be able to produce things and have enough money to provide, you know, overall security for the people. Now, though, you know, one of the things they say at the very top is the security situation has become much more complex. And I read this readout is when they talk about balancing security with the development, it's almost like it's been flipped on its head, where security is now a precursor for ongoing and sustainable economic growth. And that particularly makes sense when you think about the export controls that the U.S. has put on China in the semiconductor sector, for example. That's a security-related issue that is fundamentally impacting China's ability to grow or may in the future, in the near future, impact China's ability to grow. So it's almost as if this kind of construct where development led to security for many, many years has been flipped and now security is the precursor for the economy to do what it needs to do. Going back to your journey, you're going back to your point. I'm curious, the key audience for readouts like this are subordinate units in the political system. This is often how China aligns a very complex, fragmented system is through these top line signals which come out. So imagining what you and Andrew say is the intended message here, how do you think this affects the incentive structures for uh, bureaucrats, cadres within the system, hearing that I should better balance security and development, what does that mean when I'm making a marginal decision about do I allocate my time towards attracting investment or do I allocate my time towards sort of domestic stability in my given jurisdiction? You know, your point about these being tensions, i just curious if you have any thoughts on how those might be navigated by actors within the system. Right. So if I'm, you know, this was the Central National Security Commission, but there are subnational versions of this as well. If I'm a local official, I would be confused because so economic development or economic stabilization entails some well-worn policy tools. And maybe they're not optimal, but at least it, there's sort of a ready kit there. Whereas if in this case, if I'm being told that, you know, this is an increasingly complex situation and to be essentially worried about the external environment and the background here is the core technologies and export controls, then that means that my existing policy toolkit, particularly as a local official, is not all that relevant. So if it were saying 
essentially what we're worried about is domestic unrest. That's one thing because that, you know, you have local PAT forces or whatever to manage that as necessary. But if it's saying what we're worried about is in the broader context of what she has been saying in, in the recent months is sort of technological and economic containment. As a local official, it's far less obvious to me what I can do about that besides maybe using some of my dwindling resources to dial industrial policy up to 11 and provide more guidance to local firms to pursue more indigenous innovation or basically try to replace core foreign inputs that you actually can get rid of. But it's hard because at the same time, they have an obvious economic problem and localities, at least many of them, are really strapped financially. And so if you don't have the fiscal tools to do much, it's not obvious. Like, how do you even meet this mandate? I don't actually know. And can I just jump on the back of that to say that I totally agree with Gerard about the confusion aspect. And I would say that's both that confusion seems to be manifesting both externally and internally. What I mean is typically we like to say that like China or policy is best in China or anywhere, really, when there's a few discrete non-contradictory goals. So you look at Xi Jinping's, you know, three tough battles from kind of 2017 through 2020. There's three main things we're focusing on, financial de-risking, poverty alleviation, and climate change, or, you know, net zero transition. And so it was very clear that those were the three things everybody's supposed to get behind. Right now, though, they do have potentially contradictory goals of security and economic growth. And I think If you're in the system, I think a lot of it comes down to what's your role. If you're a local government official, you know, at the local NDRC or wherever, or the local DRC, your charge is to boost investment from the foreign business community. And so you see this idea of balancing development with security and you say, okay, well, I'm going to go get more development. And then if you're a security official, you naturally see this phrase, better balance development with security. And you say, oh, I know what that means. It means, you know, make sure information flows are are better protected. And that ends up with, you know, in a spate of raids of due diligence firms in China. And so I think local officials are conflicted and confused depending on what their role is, but also then so is the foreign business community, right? That's what everybody's been saying for the past few weeks or months. Is China open for business or not? They're saying they want FDI, but then they're doing all these things in the name of security that makes us think maybe they actually are going to make our lives much harder. Yeah, I was going to say that the clearest manifestation of this tension or growing incoherence is just policy since the summer of 2021, where you've seen different actors within the system jostling for advantage or pursuing their own, you know, where you sit is where you stand interests in ways that lead to this sort of whipsawing of policy. So, of course, we saw this with, you know, actors like CAC grabbing onto the data piece and pushing forward in ways of trying to sort of securitize data. And I think they've largely won that. And Andrew, as you just said, the question on the minds of many was, is China open for business or not? Because on the one hand, you've seen this public messaging campaign from actors like Li Chong, you know, Premier Li Chong trying his best to, and I'll, I'll steal your line, Gerard, you know, sort of a vibes-based recovery of essentially trying to instill confidence in place of institutional reforms or liberalizations. And then I think everyone was caught off guard by the actions against Mintz, then Bain. And I think if you have a fragment, a sort of a picture of fragmented authoritarianism, this is an easier story to describe because you understand that essentially Xi Jinping is not sitting in some mothership 
with you know dials and levers that he's pulling in some refined measure. This is a really clunky oil tanker with maybe two or three different steering wheels. And so I'm sure you had security actors who were reading these messages. Again, the actions against Bain and Mintz came before the National Security Commission, but the vibe was already out there of, you know, uh, security actors can go aggressive and pay no cost. So they're moving down that lane. Meanwhile, you have, you know, Lee Chong and the economic regulators trying to protect their equities and trying to signal to the business community, COVID's over, we're open for business. And you get that clash. And I, I wonder what you think about this, but it has struck me that as we think about regulatory behavior in China, we increasingly need to bake in uh, schizophrenia into how regulators are going to act, not because Xi Jinping himself is directing them such, but again, you've got all these actors underneath who are reading the signal that they want to read. And even with the National Security Commission readout, you will see discussion of reform. So it's a sort of an a la carte menu that is out there. And that's at least how I see that quote unquote balance between development and security. I think Xi Jinping thinks he can get both and so is trying to message both. But the problem is actors underneath him with their own bureaucratic interests are going to you know, pick one or the other and clash. Going back to something Andrew was saying, when you, you know, if you compare it to the three key battles, which you know that was financial stability, really dealing with the shadow banking sector, eliminating extreme poverty and, and pollution, each of those had indicators you could track, right? I mean, on the financial side, maybe it was more preventing the bad thing from happening, but the other two, there are things like you know PM two point five for pollution, or they literally wanted to eradicate extreme poverty by their own definition, and so you had a sense of what what it would take to achieve the objective, and it even had a three year window, so you knew that this was supposed to be done by twenty twenty. This, when the order is you must you know pursue national security, I don't know what the indicators are. I also don't know when it ends, if ever, right? So particularly if, if you're trying to reassure the business community, including foreign investors, I don't know how to calibrate that. So like, if you say, oh, extreme poverty, I know that's over because they said it's over because they hit their own numbers, right? But here, like, how much is enough? What are they even tracking? What are the KPIs? I think that would probably add to the officials' confusion as well. Just to, to get to that, I mean, this is probably the nub of the matter going back as well to the challenge of effectively implementing this vision of national security and coordinating it across other actors, the 2015 national security law defines national security as the relative absence of danger from internal and external threats to state power, sovereignty, unity, and territorial integrity, the well-being of the people, sustainable economic and social development, and other vital interests of the country, as well as the ability to guarantee a state of continuous security. So not a particularly tight or refined definition of national security. And the other point that is is worth mentioning is if you scratch even a nanometer of the discourse on national security, they have a very, very specific conception of it, I think, in reality, which is it's the political security of the Communist Party of China. So it's like when, you know, and Andrew, when we were at the conference board, it was always a frustration when we were in China and you would hear the term middle class or you would read these articles about the growth of the middle class in China, and people would map onto it their vision of what middle class looked like here, even though we had very different definitions of income brackets. I get that sense with our discussion of national security. We're immediately filtering that through our own conception of it, but the party is very, very clear on functionally what this means is the regime security and specifically the Communist Party. And that's why, again, going back to the regulatory environment, this is going to be so herky-jerky because the security of the Communist Party is an ever-shifting and moving target. And whereas it would not have been 
due diligence firms maybe five or six years ago. We're at a period now where the party has suddenly decided that this is a challenge. So I, I think this is always going to be a moving target. Yeah, it's interesting, Jude, that you know you point that out. Obviously, I think that's right, that the baseline is the survival and maintenance and power of the party. It does strike me that there's a few things that they do in this readout that sort of almost seem to be widening the net in terms of of what they're talking about and what they're trying to message around national security. And obviously, national security has a way of doing that, right? Just kind of the definition kind of grows and grows and grows and never gets shrunk back down. But two things that I found of interest are, one, they adopted two documents at the meeting. One was on building a national security risk monitoring and early warning system. Maybe we can come back to that. But the second one was on boosting national security education. So you talked about who is the key audience for this document. And the initial audience, obviously, is cadres within the system. But it also strikes me that they do want to send a message to the broader public, which may be one of the reasons that they took the unusual step of even publishing this readout to let the people know, like, we are besieged. And there's obviously a political benefit in that. But to say, like, the populace needs to understand this issue on a deeper level, understand we're besieged in that threat. And so that was one interesting kind of additional audience or kind of widening of the message. And the other thing that I found, you know, particularly interesting was they they kind of bifurcate between external security. I think we have a tendency to assume they're mostly focused on external security, but they actually talk about external security and internal security. The latter is mostly around, you know, things like AI and new information flows and how's that going to impact the party's governance. But I, in terms of the external, they did mention this idea that they want to actively shape an external security environment that is beneficial to us. And that struck me as somewhat a new language and kind of new thinking that we not only need to provide security, but actively shaping the external environment in our favor. And they're clearly doing that more and more. But I didn't I just wanted to hear either of your thoughts on what you make of this kind of widening with the populace and then specifically trying to say, we're going to try to shape the external environment. I was thinking, and I'm glad you mentioned, Andrew, the idea of, of like a some risk monitoring because I'm, I normally think of what they worry about, particularly for like threats to stability in the CCP itself. I think of those as mostly domestic when it becomes like, say the economy, if there's mass unemployment, that's kind of an obvious problem, right? But external threats, particularly like in the tech space, it's less of an obvious uh, causal linkage to me. So it's like, how do you determine what the specific threat is to then be able to monitor the risk from that threat, which gets back to my questions about metrics, right? So, but I think you're right that they're looking at both internal and external, which could include a lot of things. And if you're, if, again, if you're a local official, you're like fighting in two different directions. And one of those might be you're trying to stabilize the economy or whatever, and that is sort of domestic security, but there's also other stuff going on. And it's not clear how you address the external side if you're a local official. I wanted to go up in elevation a few hundred feet, which is to talk about what is happening in the external environment that might also be feeding into this assessment. We saw at, you know, Gerard, as you mentioned, at the MPC in March, we saw Xi Jinping warn of, quote, Western countries led by the United States engaged in all out in, in, in containment, encirclement, and suppression 
of course, now the language in this talks about uh, China being needing to be able to withstand high winds, stormy waters. So we're seeing increasing messaging from Xi Jinping. One of the challenges as external observers is, and, and I noticed this debate going on right now, what is China reacting to an external environment and essentially trying to harden defenses? What is Xi Jinping potentially hardening defenses and gearing the system up for a more confrontational approach. I bet if you were to ask Chinese interlocutors, they would see this as purely and 100% defensive. This is one of the dynamics at play here in US, you know, China bilateral relations is both sides think they are purely acting in the defensive and everything the other side is doing is offensive. But, you know, Gerard, you know, having spent your bulk of your career in the IC, when you read this, does this strike you as a defensive sort of hardening the defenses? Or does this strike you as Xi Jinping essentially gearing up for something different? I tend to think of it as defensive because they see themselves as being vulnerable. I mean, maybe the answer to the question or one way of answering it is what is causing this, right? So as you already said, she was explicit that it's fear of all around containment from the United States, which is probably most acutely in response to the October 7th export controls, but other things as well. And those are things which, from China's perspective, are offensive against China, even though we would maybe argue they're defensive. And so trying to counter that strikes me as mostly defensive. I think you might ask, like, okay, what is the practical difference of each one of those interpretations, right? So if it's purely defensive, then you might think, well, they're just responding to external, mostly U.S. actions. And insofar as we sort of dial back or stop adding new export controls or whatever, then they're not going to add more measures and it's and they'll sort of maybe calm down. The offensive version is they're preparing for something to come where they expect bad things to happen from the U.S., or they have specific intentions that are even broader, maybe relating to Taiwan. They're not mutually exclusive, of course, so it's hard to know. But I generally think of their system as being extremely insecure and paranoid. And most of their policy is being more reactive than people often in this town, at least, believe. And so I see this as some pretty clear triggers from the U.S. And it's not necessarily an indication of any changing uh, Chinese intentions. I might disagree with you a little bit, Gerard, just for the fun of it. I think overall, your depiction, I think, is accurate. Uh, my reading, if you put this National Security Commission meeting sort of in broader context, we kind of see Xi Jinping's recent efforts on the global stage as kind of the way we put them all together is saying Xi Jinping's trying to make the world safer for authoritarianism, right? And so that's not just about reaction, but kind of creating a global environment where, you know, the kind of the rules of geopolitics that were established kind of post-World War II and post-Cold War are increasingly seen as at odds with China's interests. And so I think about something like Xi Jinping pushing the Global Security Initiative, which is his sort of more proactive approach to say, we don't want, quote, bought politics. We don't like NATO. We don't like sort of this strong collection of Western allies. Instead, what we should push towards is, you know, a more real politic geopolitical environment where countries are sort of safe to pursue their own interests. And, you know, obviously from a normative point of view, we can analyze that or and, and disagree with it or whatever. But it does seem that she and co do seem, in my view, to be being more proactive than they have been in the past about not just trying to survive, but 
to the extent possible, shaping the external environment to basically make it safer for the CCP. So maybe we can meet halfway, though, and say that there clearly is a sort of counter-containment diplomatic strategy. And maybe the crux of that is, well, maybe it's two fronts. With the advanced economies, it's trying to keep them closely tied financially and economically, particularly with Europe, uh, maybe Korea and a few others. And then the other part of that would be the global south, where China is essentially trying to become the leader of the new non-aligned movement or whatever you want to call it in the Russia context of pretending to be neutral when they're not. I'll concede all of that. And I would say that is sort of an offensive diplomatic posture. But then where I'm a little bit scratching my head in this specific context is that this readout is for the National Security Commission. And those policies are mostly foreign policies that would be handled presumably by the Foreign Affairs Commission. And so like, what, what's the point of broadcasting? Maybe that's part of the broader impulse of Chinese policy. But if you're asking me, how do I read this particular statement? I think of that as being mostly beyond the, the scope of what this is talking about, because most of the cadres reading this have little to no bearing on the execution of the diplomatic strategy. Maybe I can add my own slight disagreement, which is I think it's pretty clear that one of the innovations Xi Jinping has driven on national security is to expand this in two directions. One, Andrew was just mentioning this sort of blurring the lines between, quote, traditional security threats and non-traditional, right? So non-traditional would you know, could be in AI, right? Or new and emerging technologies, increasing in the information domain. And then the other one is attempting to eradicate the barriers between domestic and international because, you know, and there's a pretty robust literature in the, the Chinese sort of national security world on this, understanding that, you know, internal threats to the internal regime may emerge externally and vice versa. So I think Again, this is to where if your conception of national security is about regime security, then the demarcations between foreign and domestic don't make sense. The other thing is the National Security Commission is designed to be China's own version of an interagency. So it is designed to both you know, talk across internal and, ex- and primarily externally faced actors. And then I think, Gerard, as we were talking about before we started clicking record, there's not only a central national security commission, there's a, in classic Leninist fashion, you have subordinate national security commissions at the provincial, local, municipal level. So I think this goes kind of vertically, but also horizontally across you know borders as well. That again speaks to maybe one of the challenges Xi Jinping has set up for himself, an incredibly expansive definition of national security that basically transcends all galactic limits and is defined across almost every domain. If you look at sort of how they define the national security issues, you know, it's cultural security, economic security, financial security, discourse security. I think that both means this is going to be a, an unpredictable behemoth, and it will also functionally challenge the ability, I think, of Xi Jinping to be able to effectively address some of, you know, even on the party's own terms, some of the most acute challenges that it it faces, such as the, if everything is national security, nothing is national security. There are some emergent signs that some national security thinkers in China get this. And I want to read from a a readout that we translated from a conference on on national security work in China that was held in Beijing in 2022. And an academic at Peking University 
said, quote, that as the list of national security concerns grows longer, this may lead to a situation where the country is overwhelmed with limited time and resources, ministries are overwhelmed, and national decisions are misguided, which may have significant negative consequences for the development of the state, the nation, and society. So clearly you're seeing some people in the system recognize that this kind of ever-expanding conception of national security is going to be counterproductive insofar as it's going to overwhelm the ability of limited resources and bureaucratic actors to prioritize and focus on, again, on China's own terms, what are the most acute national security concerns? Yeah. I mean, if you're a party secretary at whatever level of government, you're basically being told that your priority is everything now. I want to just for the last few minutes talk about functional consequences of this. Andrew, let me start with you and Gerard want to get you to come in on this. Let's think about the regulatory environment for investors, companies, whether those are Chinese, you know, corporates or privates, whether those are, are overseas companies. You know, we have seen since 2015, 2016, this national security language really start to bleed over into policy documents. You know, you saw Xi Jinping in early 2016, April 25th, I think it was, at a Politburo meeting say, financial security is national security. How do you see this shift over the last several years of functionally impacting economic and financial policy? Yeah, it's a great question. I'd say it is a bit of a double-edged sword because as you all have been pointing out, if everything's national security, then you can't prioritize anything. But you know, in the specific case of the financial sector, it was really only after Xi Jinping said, this is a national security priority that things started to get done. Again, that was a little bit of a different environment because there were sort of clearer goals and a smaller number of goals, it seemed, at the time. But that then really put people behind the financial de-risking campaign that took place from 2017 to 2020. And you know, folks said, okay, we realize that this is a level of very high importance because it is national security, and so we're going to push it through. And they got a lot done in terms of de-risking the financial system. So you know, if you're somewhat judicious with that designation, then it can be very powerful. But obviously, the more you kind of tack on, the more convoluted it becomes harder to focus resources. One of the things, and I don't have evidence for this, but Gerard, curious your thoughts on this. It struck me that I can imagine a world in which Financial regulators, specifically Lioha, are trying to find ways to get Xi Jinping to care about de-risking in the financial sector. And my interpretation of that Xi Jinping comment in 2016 of financial security is national security was actually a victory for financial regulators of finding a language to communicate with Xi Jinping such that he understood it. Now, I'm not negating all the other pathologies of this national security construct, which are evident, but I wonder to what extent actors within the system have been able to move issues and specifically de-risking, advance those bureaucratically because they finally found a language with which to communicate with Xi Jinping. So you might think of the 2017 financial de-risking campaign as a response to, yeah, I think Liu He and his authoritative person article and all that stuff was important. But the trigger was the devaluation and capital outflows and stock market meltdown of 2015 through early 2016. And so that was something that she was probably not paying as close attention to until it happened. So there was something you can identify sort of justifying that level of concern. In this case, what is the event that is justifying whoever these, these people are arguing for a change in policy? And I still would think it comes back to what the U.S. has been doing, right? Because what else 
what else has changed so much in the external environment as, well, I guess maybe Russia, but that was... Russia, I worsening relations with Europe. But that was because of China's response to Russia. So No, 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 no. I, no, but it goes before that, right? So, I mean, the, the shift in Europe starts in 2016 when you have this massive outbound, spike in outbound investment, which, you know, Syngenta, KUKA, which leads to changes in European... I mean, I think, I think if you remove United States from this equation, you're still going to see China seeing its external environment at the margin worse. And I, I don't see us as the sort of ultimate architect of, of all of this. I agree, like, I won't deny the dynamic of the US here, but I think there's a lot else motivating Xi Jinping's comment. And again, we're going back to the March MPC comment. He said the West. Now, admittedly, he said led by the United States, but he said the West. And that's why I've noticed in shorthand, people shrinking that comment to him saying it was the United States who's containing. And I always have to remind everyone, no, 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 no. He basically said the entire G7. But they also have a tendency to not give agency to non-U.S. members of the G7, right? My only point is, I think this is a judgment, but my sense is that motivating the darkening depiction of the international environment is definitely bilateral relations. But I think it is also, and again, we shouldn't deny agency to other countries as well, organic discussions that are happening in Australia and Japan, you know, and other countries around the world, which are engaging with manifestations of Chinese power, responding to those, and then that feeding back into the Chinese system as a worsening external environment. Yeah. You know, going back to the, I mean, I agree with all that, but going back to the parallel with the financial crackdown in 2017, if in that case, we think Liu Ho was the one pushing it, and I think he was, or at least he was fairly instrumental. In this case, who is the one pushing it? Is it just she himself? Pushing what? Like whatever the change, if, if we're saying they're responding to an external stimulus and that is what's changing the prioritization, right? And before we identified what it was to the financial side and who was pushing that change, going back to your earlier question, but then like in this case, who is, is it just pure she? Like, is there someone advocating, is there like a national security camp or whatever in China that's pushing these directions of policies? Or is it more just sort of the whole system? I mean, if there is, they're pushing on an open door with Xi Jinping. My sense is that this very much reflects Xi Jinping's worldview. You know, the feedback loop is broken, though, because I sense no peripheral vision capability of Xi Jinping to understand where, you know, their actions are fundamentally shaping that external environment. Again, I'm not trying to remove agency from other actors in the system, but I, I think this is very much now a representation of Xi Jinping's pure policy priorities in view of great power competition. And so I think the, the question is actually the other way, which is where in the system is there any moderating force? You know, we were at a thing today where someone mentioned, you know, the success of PCAOB negotiations as a, you know, a glimmer of hope in the bilateral relationship. And my view is that, that actually shows just how desperately bad things are if we're looking to PCAOB, you know, tentative sort of deal because A, if you take out Feng Xinghai, you know, does the deal go forward? And so once we see the wholesale removal of that generation of kind of quasi-pro-reform regulators with any sort of street cred in the system, you know, what constrains Xi Jinping's worldview? Uh, yeah, you know you're in a bad place when everyone's saying, we're worried about conflict in the Taiwan Strait. And the answer is, call the accountants. <laughs> Let's see if we can get this sorted out. But no, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think very much so that there is very little pushback in the system, or at least productive pushback in the system. Certainly, there are still, as we know, you know, people who are 
still pushing or would like to see a reform agenda, you know, like to see more market driven activity, like to see, you know, more financial openness, et cetera. But my understanding is, you know, these things do ebb and flow, but certainly ebbing towards or flowing towards, excuse me, national security at the moment. And I think it's pretty in clear when in the statement, better balance development with security. <laughs> the implicit message is we've done the development really well for a long time. <laughs> we need more of the security piece. And so I think that push is, you know, system wide, led by Xi Jinping and doesn't seem to be, you know, facing a significant amount of pushback within the system at the moment. I was going to answer your your question from earlier about what's next for investors and businesses if if we can circle back to that. So, you know, I think the big question that everyone's asking is where does this where and if the security expansion or the expanding definition of national security will stop, right? So, one way that we think about a lot of the, not a lot, but the kind of spate of raids that happened recently is if we look at them one by one and, you know, we, Jude, you and I have talked about, you have to be careful kind of creating a post hoc rationalization for, for this kind of thing. But it does strike us that, you know, to the extent these things may be linked, the efforts were largely around cutting off flows of information that may end up putting a Chinese company on U.S. sanction list or other economic restriction list. So, you know, the reporting around these raids is that some of it may be linked to Xinjiang, right? Investigations of Xinjiang supply chains. Where's one area where a bunch of Chinese entities or people or and companies have been sanctioned? Xinjiang. Military linked ideas or military linked secrets. That's obviously a red line anyway, but that's another big area of sanctions or economic restrictions. And then integrated circuits, right? Semiconductors, another area where you've seen significant moves by the U.S. to restrict access in China. And so while we've been trying to figure out how China is going to respond to the widening, we'll just call it sanctions, but by that I mean sanctions, broader economic restrictions, export controls, they don't really have a lot of good retaliatory methods, right? And so that's one reason seemingly why the response has been so muted and so slow. But it does seem to me that one thing that the very least they can do is, well, let's start doing our best to make sure flows of information that are going to feed the sanctions beast get cut off. And that's one way I interpret some of these recent moves. The question then for investors and companies is, well, if the lines are expanding to broader amounts of information are considered, you know, feeding the sanctions beast, where, if at all, does that stop? Does all financial information, all commodity information, all et cetera, start to become national security and a state secret or whatever? I don't personally think we're going to get there in the very, very short term, but that's obviously the trend. And that's what businesses and investors are worried about. Are we just going to lose access to the information that we need based on national security grounds so that we can't invest or do business in China. And I think that's where the big open question is at the moment. Yeah. And of course, the information that, that quote unquote feeds the sanctions beast is the same information that feeds the investment beast, the M&A beast. And this is to your point of I, I some sense, I think China does struggle with proportionate tit for tat responses. A, you're right. Structurally, I think they have a more limited tool set than we do beyond sort of you know, a lot of blunt force punitive action against companies. And we've discussed before, if you look at things like the unreliable entity list, 
it's not that it has no effect, right? And as we've said, I think a lot of companies are now, you know, now especially that China has used it, are worried if they come next. But that's different from efficacy because I think China's view is we will use the unreliable entity list on company A and that will force company B to go scurrying back to their capital, effectively lobby their their government to, you know, pull back on actions. And I think there's absolutely zero evidence that that is going to happen. And of course, even with the Micron decision, that didn't deliver a tit for tat retaliatory punch that got the United States to back off. You then have this round of discussion of we can't let China come after our, you know, come after our companies. So, <laughs> oh, the irony. <laughs> you can't buy our chips, but you have to buy our some of our chips. <laughs> well, Andrew, uh, Gerard, I want to thank you for a great discussion. A lot more, and I suspect we'll be returning to the issue of uh, national security many times in the future over the next 600 years of the Xi Jinping reign. Uh, <laughs> so thank you both and see you on a future podcast. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, the Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog 